Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the exhibit Florida Before Statehood at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. It really does cover all aspects of Florida history, from the Ice Age to modern day. The amazing journey of Nathaniel H. Bishop in a paper canoe, Bishop was an interesting character. He had an adventurer spirit from a very young age. And we'll talk about traditional bluegrass music in the Sunshine State. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Florida, you'll always be my home. Forever in my heart, no matter where I go. From the deep blue Atlantic to the Gulf of Mexico. Florida, you'll always be my home. The exhibition Florida Before Statehood is on display at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. The exhibit combines display elements from the Museum of Florida History with documents and artifacts from the Florida Historical Society archives. Madeline Khaleesi is museum manager at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. It really does cover all aspects of Florida history from the Ice Age to modern day. We take a look at Spanish exploration, early settlers and their challenges, early settlements, the mission period of Florida, the British period, a little bit about all the flags that Florida has flown under and the impacts that those different uh, nations had on Florida today. The foundation of the Florida Before Statehood exhibit, including a series of informational panels and a timeline display, was created in Tallahassee. It is a traveling exhibit from the Museum of Florida History. It is part of their traveling exhibit program, so we're really excited to have it. It was created by the Department of State as part of the Viva Florida program, which was celebrating 500 years of Florida history starting with 1513 and it was obviously done in 2013 and it is a celebration of 500 years of Florida history. While Ponce de Leon gave our state its name in 1513, people have been living here for more than 14,000 years. The Florida Before Statehood exhibit explores that history as well as European contact and occupation. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History. Europeans had been living in Florida for over 330 years before Florida became a state in 1845. And prior to European contact, indigenous groups had lived in the state for thousands of years. So uh, you had enormous groups, these large groups of native inhabitants who had lived in Florida. And then uh, beginning around the 16th century, Spanish uh, explorers began landing on Florida's shores. In 1565, we had the establishment of St. Augustine, which is the oldest continuously occupied European settlement in North America. So there was a generation of, of of people living in St. Augustine before Jamestown uh, was ever established. 
St. Augustine was established to secure Spain's claim on Florida. In 1564, the French built Fort Caroline near Jacksonville, but the colony was wiped out by the founders of St. Augustine. The Spanish then constructed a series of missions in Florida and the American Southeast. Moving into the 18th century, after the French and Indian War, the Spanish actually lost control of Florida. And beginning in 1763, the British took control. A lot of people don't realize that. They, they partitioned the territory into east and west Florida, with the Apalachicola River being the dividing line. St. Augustine was the capital of east Florida, Pensacola, and west Florida. For about 20 years, the British built up the colony. And then in 1783, after the end of the American Revolutionary War, uh, the Spanish again gained control of Florida. So that's what we call the Second Spanish Period. By 1821, Florida was a United States territory, gaining statehood in 1845. All of this rich and colorful history is detailed in the Florida Before Statehood exhibit. In addition to the informational panels and timeline provided by the Museum of Florida History, the version of the exhibit at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science is augmented with displays of fascinating original documents and artifacts from the Florida Historical Society archives and the Brevard Museum collections. One of the additional objects displayed is a chronological history of Spanish colonization originally published in Spain in 1723. Ben DiBiase. It chronicles the uh, history of, of colonization of not only Florida, but all of North America, beginning with the Ponce de Leon expedition of 1513, all the way up to the early 18th century. And it's actually broken up into decades. So it's each chapter covers a 10-year period. And it's essentially, just as the title suggests, a chronological history of everything, all the events that occurred, at least as the Spanish understood it. Now, what's interesting about this particular volume, this is now known as Barcia's Chronological History of Florida. Again, it was published in Spain and it's a very Spanish perspective. Um, now, beginning in the 18th century, it was important. A lot of uh, Spanish scholars were trying to protect the, uh, the Spanish language, but they were also trying to exert the uh, Spanish claims in the New World. So one way of doing that was to perpetuate the ideas of Spanish control in the New World through publications in uh, the Old World in Spain. So this is representative of one of those books. Uh, and this is the original book. It's the original binding, uh, leather-bound book. We have the original vellum pages, some beautiful script work. I mean, this is really more a work of art now than a historical narrative. And of course, a lot of the facts, you know, can be argued today. But what's important is that it informed generations of Europeans that were coming over to the New World about the history of Florida. Another document that augments the Florida Before Statehood exhibit is a British map of Florida printed in the 1760s. It was printed for the English crown, and it was pretty rough. In fact, when you look at it, you can tell it, it sort of looks like Florida, but, but it isn't great. Uh, kind of a rough interpretation of the peninsula of Florida, and it shows uh, the locations of some of the indigenous groups, the Creeks and, and later the Seminole Indians in, in Florida and throughout the greater southeastern U.S. Uh, it shows some of the major river systems, although you can tell that very little of the interior of the territory had been explored up to this point because it's showing river systems that cross the entire state that, of course, we know now geographically don't exist. Um, but to the British, this was the beginnings of, of the British control. They needed some kind of topographical representation to present to the monarchy uh, and then begin colonization efforts, which the, the British did for the next 20 years. Other artifacts that add to the exhibit include Seminole Indian clothing and a set of rifles used in a duel to settle a political dispute in the 1830s. Also displayed are original papers from Territorial Governor Richard Keith Call. Ben DiBiase. 
in our collection, we have hundreds of documents from one of those governors, a gentleman by the name of Richard Keith Call. And he served uh, two non-consecutive terms from 1836 to 1839. And then again in 1841 uh, to 1844, he was the territorial governor of Florida. He was appointed by the U.S. federal government. And it was during his time that a lot of the progress towards statehood really occurred. Uh, now, during his first term, we had the outbreak of the Second Seminole War, and Call was the leader of the Florida militia. So he was involved in military action throughout the state, but was also involved in establishing the state government. So we have uh, part of his letter book and some original letters that, that will be on display as part of that exhibit. The temporary Florida Before Statehood exhibit fits in well with the permanent displays at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. Museum manager Madeline Khaleesi. We cover everything having to do with Florida history. We have the Ice Age and the megafauna that once roamed around Florida. We have information on the Cape Canaveral Lighthouse, local shells and crustaceans. We have information on the amazing Taylor family and the artifacts that they preserved. Currently, we have a Florida surfing exhibit from the Florida Surf Museum. We have a lot on Spanish exploration, cattle ranching, turpentine, citrus, trains, really every industry that has had an impact on Florida, including the space industry. We have a Hubble telescope exhibit, Eye on the Universe from Kennedy Space Center here. We also have, of course, the famous Windover exhibit highlighting the Windover bog, that excavation that took place in Titusville in the 80s that was really revolutionary as it examined human beings living in Florida over 7,000 years ago. We also have a butterfly garden and 22 acres of nature trails for people who want to get out there and see what Florida nature has to offer. The exhibition Florida Before Statehood is on display at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. The exhibit combines display elements from the Museum of Florida History with artifacts and documents from the Florida Historical Society archives. Florida, you'll always be my home, forever in my heart, no matter where I go, from the deep Gulf of Mexico, Florida, you'll always be my home. Oh, Florida, you'll always be my home. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch archived episodes of our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Winding and swirling and dancing along, passed by the old willow tree, where lovers caress as we Sing them our song, rejoicing together when we greet the sea. And it goes on and on, watching the
Joining us again is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, Nathaniel H. Bishop visited Florida in 1875, arriving in an unusual way. Yeah, that's right. When Bishop first came to Florida, it was aboard a small 14-foot paper canoe, if you can believe that. Um, Bishop was an interesting character. He had an adventurer spirit from a very young age. Uh, he was born in Medford, Massachusetts in 1837, and at the age of 17, he traveled to South America and embarked on a thousand-mile journey across the continent. He later published his journey in a, uh, a series of manuscripts. He came back to the Northeast, settled in Massachusetts, had a cranberry farm uh, for a little while, but apparently the, uh, the itch to travel hit him again sometime in the early 1870s, and he decided to embark on a journey uh, aboard a canoe from Montreal at that time, from from uh, the Quebec province of Canada, all the way along the eastern seaboard to the Gulf of Mexico, uh, a, a distance of approximately 2,500 miles. But unlike uh, many other adventurers who would uh, embark on a train or a large sloop, he decided to do it in a small canoe. Now, originally, the, the first canoe that he built was actually made of wood. It was a traditional birch bark uh, canoe, but it weighed a few hundred pounds, and he only made it about 400 miles before the canoe was swamped, and he was exhausted. Uh, so while in uh, the small town of, at that time, Troy, New York, he found a boat builder who was uh, constructing these canoes out of paper. And the paper was a thick manila type of paper, and it was layered on uh, several layers thick and then covered with a hard lacquer. So the actual exterior of the canoe was very strong, um, but it also made the canoe incredibly lightweight. It was only about 58 pounds, which made it possible to portage the canoe or to carry it by hand uh, over uh, overland routes. So a lot of the eastern seaboard at that time, at least the inland waterway, was not um, properly marked. So we don't, we didn't have um, a lot of uh, uh, reliable charts at that time. Uh, so one of the big goals was to to create um, a, a navigable chart along the eastern seaboard. And using this tiny canoe, Bishop thought that that he could do it in a, a short amount of time. How does Bishop describe Florida in his written works? So Bishop uh, actually left Quebec City July 4th of 1874. He doesn't make it to Florida until early 1875, first crossing over uh, the St. Mary's River, the boundary waters into Florida, uh, like I said, about February, March of 1875. And at first he's uh, uh, kind of taken aback at how rural really the settings are. Now this is someone who had never been to Florida. And Keep in mind, in 1874, we're, we're uh, you know, less than a decade after the end of the Civil War, the population of Florida was still very, very small. Um, and the areas that he was traveling into, these uh, upland river uh, systems, were very sparsely populated. Uh, most of the, the uh, people that he encountered were engaged in lumbering operations. They were uh, fishermen or, or just frontiersmen who were living uh, you know, away from civilization. And, and a lot of the characters he describes in, in uh, really colorful detail. Um, one group in particular, he talks a lot about um, African Americans. These are, are you know, freedmen, you know, uh, recently emancipated slaves who were living in Florida or had moved to Florida after the end of the Civil War. In kind of a common Northeastern mentality at the time, he kind of approaches it with a paternalistic uh, type of view. You know, he, he sees the, the African Americans more as kind of a, a caricature. Um, and he at length describes in, in kind of a f uh, phonetic vernacular um, how a lot of the African-American communities, uh, how they assemble for religious gatherings. He talks a lot about some of their 
their lumbering operations and their kind of separate communities outside of the white community. So, you know, in that regard, uh, it's an, it's a valuable piece of, uh, of literature because we can kind of see what these communities were like, at least through the eyes of, uh, of someone from the Northeast who had never really lived in the South. And it's a, a kind of a different viewpoint um, in 1875. But of course, he also talks about the wildlife. He encounters uh, a number of large alligators uh, throughout most of the Southeast. He also relates a story of a Florida panther that had attacked a hunter on the Suwannee River uh, a few weeks before he had actually passed through that area and actually killed the killed the hunter. Um, but I'd like to uh, just read a passage of, of one of the uh, encounters with an alligator uh, along the Suwannee River. Bishop writes, quote, While I listened, there rose a cry so hideous in its character and so belligerent in its tone that I trembled with fear upon my palm-leaf mattress. It resembled the bellowing of an infuriated bull, but was louder and more penetrating in its effect. The proximity of this animal was indeed unpleasant, for he had planted himself on the river's edge, near the little bluff upon which my camp had been constructed. The loud roar was answered by a similar bellow from the other side of the river, and for a long time did these two male alligators keep up their challenging cries without coming to combat, unquote. Well, why is Bishop's journey significant to us today? Well, as I mentioned before, most of the small inland uh, river systems throughout the eastern seaboard, including Florida, were uncharted. Uh, so one of the goals of Bishop's expedition was to relay detailed uh, maps and charts to the um, U.S. Coastal Survey Service because he wanted these waterways to be opened up for navigation. Uh, he felt with a little bit of dredging, we could open up these waterways, and rather than traveling in the open ocean, small ships would be able to sail uh, throughout the inland seas. He also talks a little bit about a cross-Florida bar canal uh, because the the route that he took was up the St. Mary's River, a small portage across to the Suwannee, and then down the Suwannee River into the Gulf of Mexico. Interesting. Thanks a lot, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Florida folk music includes a long tradition of bluegrass music. Holly Baker has this look at bluegrass music in the Sunshine State.
bluegrass music has been called folk music and overdrive and that high and lonesome sound. Florida might not come to mind as a state with a strong bluegrass music tradition, but old-time string band and bluegrass have deep roots in Florida. Bluegrass is a mainstay at the long-running Florida Folk Festival in White Springs, Florida, and at other festivals and jam sessions throughout the state. Bluegrass music takes its name from Kentuckian Bill Monroe and his band called the Bluegrass Boys, who created a high-energy musical style in the early 20th century that combined elements of old-time string band, big band, and blues music. Bluegrass is also influenced by the musical stylings of Monroe's Uncle Penn, mandolinist Lester Flatt, and banjo picker Earl Scruggs. We recently discussed bluegrass music with 32-year-old East Tennessee bluegrass fiddler, violinist, guitarist, and orchestra conductor Derek Deacons. Deacons has played the violin since the age of five and the fiddle since the age of nine. As a professional musician, he has appeared numerous times on the Grand Ole Opry stage, and he has performed with the likes of Charlie Daniels, Mac Wiseman, the Osborne Brothers, Blake Shelton, and even Bill Monroe's son James. Deacons tells us more about bluegrass music. It's a hard-driving music. It's kind of a mixture of blues and fiddle tunes. And even Bill would say, you know, a lot of it came from his influence of being around uh, some of those blues guitar players that he was around growing up. So it's a it's a heavy mixture of just hard-driving music with uh, a fiddle from Scotch-Irish tradition mixed in that he learned from his Uncle Penn, fiddle tunes, and then, of course, a traditional bluegrass band. You're going to find the mandolin, banjo, bass, guitar, and fiddle. And sometimes you'll run into the dobro, which adds a, a, a new flavor to the style. I want to go back to see my daughter. I wonder if she's still free. To me, she's dear and sweet as honey. But is she still waiting for me? That's Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys performing Monroe's song called My Florida Sunshine at the 1993 Florida Folk Festival in White Springs. The father of bluegrass, Bill Monroe, had numerous ties with Florida. Monroe performed at music festivals and events throughout the state, and in 1943 he bought his famous mandolin, a 1923 Gibson Lloyd Lore F5, after seeing it in a barbershop window in Miami, Florida. Monroe's most well-known song also has connections to Florida. Blue Moon of Kentucky was inspired by a large moon that Monroe saw over the highway while he was heading home after touring in Florida. It was on a moonlight night, the stars shining bright, and they whispered from on high, your love said goodbye. Blue Moon of Kentucky, keep on shining. Shine on the one that's gone and said goodbye. Bluegrass music can still be heard in Florida, sometimes in unexpected places. The longest-running bluegrass jam in Florida occurs in a parking lot behind the Pizza Hut on West Colonial Drive in Ocoee, Florida. 74-year-old banjo picker Jack Lewis founded the Ocoee parking lot bluegrass jam with his wife Judy and their friend Cecil Parks Kimberly. You can usually find Jack, Judy, and other members of Moonlight Express at the jam, 
which takes place every Friday night and has done so for the last 25 years, weather permitting. sat down with Jack Lewis and he told us about his introduction to bluegrass music. And I was over at my mother's visiting and she was playing a bluegrass record, uh, namely Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs, and I kind of uh, just kind of fell in love with it. And she loaned me the record and I told my wife I was going to learn to play a five-string banjo and that's the way it started. Lewis also told us more about the folks who stopped by the Okoye parking lot bluegrass jam each week. We call them pickers and grinners, the people that's playing the music, picking, and the grinners over there listening and enjoying it. But a lot of couples, we think, would would come on Friday night because they didn't have much else to do, and uh, they looked forward to it every Friday night, so we enjoyed them being there, and we would play for them, play to them. We knew a lot of people. They would request songs, and we'd do it for them. Just having a good time, that's what it's all about. Bluegrass fiddler Derek Deacons recently dropped by the Okoye parking lot to play his fiddle with Jack Lewis and other bluegrass musicians who gathered there on a Friday night. says there's something about the Okoye parking lot bluegrass jam that keeps him coming back. If it boiled down to it, it would be the music. I mean, I love bluegrass, and I love being able to play it with people that know the same songs as me. But Okoye especially has just a, a great group of people that are friendly and welcoming. It's almost like going to a family reunion each week and talking to each other, not only about music, but things that are going on in your life. It just becomes a, a real friendship and connection with the community. Bluegrass, the style of music created in the Kentucky Hills nearly 100 years ago, is still alive at bluegrass jams and festivals throughout Florida. For the past 25 years, on Friday nights at dark 30, you can even find it in a parking lot in Ocoee. Just follow the sound of Jack Lewis's banjo. Seen a lot of changes. Uh, gonna see some more probably. But hopefully the bluegrass jam will hang in there. We're still having fun. I'm Holly Baker. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week 
Until then, you can find us online at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for this program came from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our editor is John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.